We continue today in Genesis chapter 2. Genesis chapter 2, the title of today's message is The Rest of the Creation Story. The Rest of the Creation Story. And that's really what you get in Genesis 2. Genesis 1 is the chronological order. Genesis 2 is filling out some details, not necessarily in chronological order, but filling out some details of the creation, particularly of man and woman and a few other interesting details that God saw fit to give us in the inspired writ of Scripture. So the rest of the creation story, before we get started, because we're transitioning from one chapter to the next, we spent a great deal of time in chapter 1, let's once again outline where we're at in Genesis chapter 1 and 2, beginning with Genesis 1.31. Then God saw everything that He had made, and indeed it was very good. So the evening and the morning were the sixth day. God saw everything that He had made, and indeed it was very good. So the evening and the morning were the sixth day. He finished His creative work. It was all pronounced good. And once again, we have a literal evening and a literal morning and a literal sixth day. Basically, there are two world views. Eternal creator God or eternal uncreated cosmos. The 5th century philosopher Parmenides popularized the true statement ex nihilo nihil fit. Literally translated, this Latin phrase means out of nothing, nothing comes. Christians have no difficulty with that maxim. The eternal, self-existent, all-powerful, all-wise, holy, triune God created everything without pre-existing material, out of nothing. Literally, ex nihilo, in six literal days. The one true God is unlike the fictitious idols that man created. Mankind's idols did not create everything from nothing. They are said to merely fashion and shape the eternal material universe that already existed. God alone created space, time, and matter about 6,000 years ago. God created a mature universe with the appearance of age, just like He created mature birds, not eggs. Just like He created a man and a woman, not a bouncing baby boy or a pink, cuddly baby girl. All of God's creation was pronounced good. There was no sin. There was no death. Survival of the fittest, millions of years of death and struggle did not create the species. God created a vast array of life forms in accordance with His own wisdom to procreate after their kind. And that's actually what we see through scientific observation in the world. Ex nihilo, nihil fit, the laws of causality, the law of probability, the law of biogenesis, the second law of thermodynamics, and the theory of information that should be a law, all confirm the biblical worldview. Any law and all laws of every kind confirm the biblical worldview. Hear that again. Any law and all laws of any kind confirm the biblical world view. The immaterial laws that govern the material universe so that we might know the universal truth of mathematics, the immaterial, universal, invariant laws of logic that govern immaterial thought so that we might know good thought from bad thought, truth from insanity, and the immaterial, universal, invariant laws of morality that govern thought and deeds confirm the biblical world view. When we reject our Creator, we reject all truth, all laws, and any path 
to the distinction of good and evil. For God defines good and evil, and without God, all attempts at such definitions are arbitrary. Without the God of Genesis 1.31, who said that it was very good and defines good and evil throughout His Word, all attempts at such definition of good and evil are arbitrary. They're a mere personal or societal preference. All truth, all laws, all true science confirm the biblical worldview. The very concept of truth upon which science is built demands and confirms the biblical worldview. We don't stand a position of weakness as men and women of faith. We stand a position of strength as men and women of a faith that is reasonable and defensible, unlike the atheist faith in an uncreated cosmos and uncreated life in that cosmos. The God, our God, is the God of truth. All truth is His. Without Him, it's possible to have truth unless you know everything. All that you think you know may well be contradicted by the vast amount of information you don't know. Unless you know everything that there is to know or you know the God that knows everything there is to know and He has revealed some truth to you, you can't actually know anything. Truth is that which comports to the mind of God as revealed in His Word. The people of God are the people of truth. One further reminder before we get into Genesis 2. This is not a debate between the spiritual versus the realist or the religious versus the irreligious. It's truth and the true religion revealed by God versus absurdity and the false religion of atheism and its wicked offspring, naturalism, materialism, Big Bang cosmology, and evolutionism. Now you've heard that a few times before in various forms. I refashioned it a bit every time. I'm trying to drive those truths home. And some of that might have went over your head. If it did, go back and listen again, because those are important, conceptual, foundational truths of our Christian world view. Carl Sagan and his fellow pseudo-intellectual atheists have suppressed the truth of God in an unrighteousness, exchanged the truth of God for a lie, and exchanged the glory of God the Creator for the creation. As Romans 1 declares, Sagan and all of his Big Bang cosmologists, Darwinian evolutionist friends, worship the creation, the cosmos, the creature, rather than the creator. They're all doing what is right in their own eyes, descending down further and further into sin and the resulting insanity of sin and destruction. First point, Genesis chapter 2, verses 1 and 2. God's creative act was finished on the sixth day. God's creative act was finished on the sixth day. Genesis 2, verse 1 and 2. Thus, the heavens and the earth and all the host of them were finished. And on the seventh day, God ended His work, which He had done, and He rested on the seventh day from all His work, which He had done. Now, if I was putting the chapter breaks that are uninspired into Scripture, I would not have put it before chapter 2, verse 1. I would have put the chapter break, personally speaking, after chapter 2, verse 2. Then I would have began chapter 2, because this is the seventh day. We had all six days of creation in Genesis 1. I would have finished it up with the seventh day. I understand why they did it. That's just my preference. Maybe you like it this way. I don't know. It's kind of immaterial. 
But here we are in chapter 2. And the heavens and the earth and all the host of them were finished. And it says thus. That's why. Thus. It's the connecting term. And that's a powerful connection. So in my mind, it belongs over there in chapter 1. Thus, because of this glory of God's creation, on day 1, day 2, day 3, day 4, day 5, day 6, six literal days, thus the heavens, the earth, and all the host of them were finished. It is finished. The entire material universe is created. All life in it on planet earth is created. God's creative act is finished. Verse 2, and on the seventh day God ended his work, which he had done, and he rested on the seventh day from all his work, which he had done. He finished his work, and he rested. Pastor MacArthur, in his excellent book, The Battle for the Beginning, comments on this finished work, saying this, the entire work of creation was complete. There were no loose ends to tie up. There were no problems to fix. No modifications to the original plan were required. Everything was completed in six days, just as God had planned. And with the dawn of the seventh day, God ceased from creating. Four times in the first three verses of Genesis 2, the text emphatically states that God had finished all the work of creation. This argues powerfully against the evolutionary doctrine, which suggests its creation is a work still in process. And by the way, this argues against theistic evolution. Not just Darwinian evolution, not just Big Bang cosmology, but professing Christians who want to deny the reality of Genesis 1 and 2. Back to Pastor MacArthur. This argues powerfully against the evolutionary doctrine, which suggests that creation is a work still in process. The biblical emphasis is on the utter perfection of everything that God created and the wondrously brief time in which he accomplished it all. The clear statement of Scripture is that the heavens and the earth and all the host of them were finished. Interestingly, since science itself offers evidence that Genesis 2.1 is true, the first law of thermodynamics rules out the possibility of ongoing creation. And the second law of thermodynamics eliminates the possibility that an ordered universe evolved naturally from chaos. Now, we're going to get sciencey here. Hang with me. We're going to get a little sciencey, then we'll come back to the text. But let's think about this, right? God's created universe. The actual laws that govern God's physical universe should conform to God's word, right? Yes, and they do. The actual laws of God's material universe conform to God's word. The first law of thermodynamics deals with the conservation of energy. This principle means simply that energy cannot be destroyed. Neither is it being created. Systems that use energy do not use it up. They merely convert it to different forms of energy. Heat, motion, sound, light, or chemical or electromagnetic energy. Remember also that Einstein's famous theorem equals mc squared, energy equals mass times the speed of light squared, teaches that matter is simply another form of energy. That means matter, like energy, cannot be destroyed. It can only be converted to another form. The amount of energy within any system, within any system remains constant unless outside forces interact with the system. The only way to increase the energy in an energy-using system is for an external force to do work on that system, adding heat, fuel, or kinetic energy to it. Likewise, energy will decrease in a system only if it is transferred out of the system as heat, light, or some other form of energy. That means in a closed system, one not subject 
to any outside force or external exchange of energy, the sum of all forms of energy always remain constant. The natural universe itself is such a closed system. The universe, by definition, includes all the matter and energy that exists. There is no natural energy outside the universe that can be added to it. And there is no place outside the universe where energy may be dissipated to. Therefore, as far as science can determine, the amount of energy and matter in the universe must remain constant. In other words, energy in the natural universe is not being created or destroyed. In other words, at the end of the sixth day, God finished His work. Indeed, there absolutely is no evidence of any ongoing creation. But where did all the matter and energy in the universe come from in the first place? If the natural universe is a closed system, its matter and energy must have come from a supernatural source, just as the Scripture teaches. And that's where the faith of naturalism comes in. That all things must be natural, nothing can be supernatural. But naturalism dies a cold death, you'll find, in a closed system without a supernatural God to create it. And so again, where did all the matter and energy in the universe come from in the first place? If the natural universe is a closed system, its matter and energy must come from a supernatural source, just as the scripture teaches. Couldn't matter and energy be eternal? Is it possible that the universe is just an immense perpetual motion machine, always evolving? No. That possibility is eliminated by the second law of thermodynamics. Now, these are not options. This is not the first option of thermodynamics or the first theory of thermodynamics and the second theory of thermodynamics. These are the laws of thermodynamics, meaning there's no known contradiction to them. The second law of thermodynamics states that the total amount of entropy in nature is increasing. Entropy is a measure of the randomness and disorder in a system. Put simply, the second law of thermodynamics means that things run down. They wear out. Systems left to run on their own always evolve from order to greater order. No, they always evolve from order to chaos, to disorder. They never get more complex. They always break down. It's never the other way around, says Pastor MacArthur. What does this have to do with thermodynamics? In non-technical terms, entropy measures the amount of wasted energy in a system. Although energy is not destroyed when it is converted from one form to another, it becomes less useful as it is converted. For example, heat is generated and dissipated when a car engine runs. That heat performs no work, and the measure of that non-productive energy is the measure of the system's entropy. All systems, even closed ones, are subject to the second law of thermodynamics. Entropy applies to everything in nature. The second law means, for example, that heat never passes naturally from a cooler to a hotter body. Heat transfer is always one way, and the process is irreversible. So in a closed system, heat will move from warmer bodies to cooler ones lowering the temperatures of the former and raising the temperatures of the latter until exact equilibrium is reached and the system becomes inert. All working systems result in a decreasing availability of useful energy. Everything will run down, wear out, and become disorderly if some external force doesn't keep it running and ordered. 
This very principle rules out any kind of perpetual motion machine, even on a cosmic scale. In other words, matter and energy cannot be eternal. All things in the material universe decay. Everything dissipates and disintegrates. If the universe were infinitely old, it would be wound down already. So the processes we observe all clearly point to a beginning. It is a beginning that must have been set in motion by supernatural causes. Precisely what Scripture teaches, a beginning that is outside of natural. We need an outside energy source. The Bible consistently says that God created all in six days. And Genesis 2 2 says that on the seventh day he ceased his creative work. There is no ongoing creation of matter or energy. John MacArthur, on the finished work of creation, is evidenced by the first and second law of thermodynamics. A sound, scientific argument built on laws that conform to the Word of God. God's creative act was finished on the sixth day. Second point, God established the seventh day week for mankind. God established your week and mine. God established the atheist week. God established the Hindus week. God established the communist week. God established every man's week. As you look back to the history of the world, you find the seven-day week is the standard for all mankind. And those few attempts to deviate from it resulted in suffering, in difficulty, in trial for men as they deviate from God's good design. So we continue our message, the rest of the creation story. The first point, God's creative act was finished on the sixth day. The second, God established the seven-day week for mankind. And let's look again at verse 1, 2, and now 3. Thus the heavens and the earth and all the host of them were finished. And on the seventh day, God ended His work, which He had done. And He rested on the seventh day from all His work, which He had done. Then God blessed the seventh day and sanctified it, because in it He rested from all His work, which God had created and made. Notice here that Genesis chapter 2 does not call the seventh day the Sabbath. In fact, the word Sabbath isn't even in the Bible until Exodus chapter 16, well into the history of mankind and God's dealings with mankind. This is not Sabbath law. This is the pattern of God's creation imprinted on mankind for their blessing that they might have a week established. Now consider this, that mathematically speaking, it doesn't make much sense. 365 divided by 7 doesn't work out. It creates all sorts of hiccups and problems and leap years and, and difficulties for us. Yet, it's God's good design, knowing how He designed us to function for us, and he established it at the beginning of creation, and all cultures have adopted it. It's evidence of the truth of the creation account. God established the seven-day week for mankind. In Mark chapter 2, verse 27, the Lord Jesus said, The Sabbath was made for man and not man for 
the Sabbath. Now, yes, when, when we get to Exodus 16, the Lord establishes the Sabbath. First of all, there in chapter 16, it's when they should go out and collect the miraculous manna that God has given them. And he says, go out on the sixth day and collect double, because on the seventh day you shall rest. It's Sabbath unto you. And that's the first time that there's a Sabbath law given. And then it's further defined in the Ten Commandments in chapter 20 and then 31 and then in Deuteronomy chapter 5. But the Lord Jesus says this Sabbath was made for man and not man for the Sabbath. This was meant to be a blessing, not a curse. The Pharisees turned it into a curse. And we have found in our Bible study Wednesday nights, John chapter 5, that the Lord Jesus came to deliberately contradict and convolute the curse they made out of the Sabbath and to show them that indeed they were Sabbath abusers and he not a Sabbath breaker. He, the Lord of the Sabbath, seeking to restore the Sabbath to its proper place as a blessing to mankind. Now for you and I who are in Christ Jesus, he is our Sabbath rest. Christ is our Sabbath rest. I believe the law of God, the Ten Commandments, the moral commands of God all stand. They're all applicable to us, all ten. There are some that would pull the Sabbath commandment out. That's not my understanding of it. However, Jesus Christ is our Sabbath rest. He is the fulfillment. So in Christ, we have the reality of the Sabbath that the day was a type of. It was a type and a picture. Christ is the reality. You and I, biblically speaking, are not Sabbatarians. If you think you're a Sabbatarian, come see me afterwards. We are not Sabbatarians. We're not keeping the Sabbath. What day is today? It's the Lord's day. It is not the Sabbath. And no man has the right to change the Sabbath from Saturday to Sunday and make the Christian Sabbath the Lord's day. There's no jot and tittle, no chapter and verse to justify that. The Roman Catholic Church has officially declared such and other churches coming out of the Roman Catholic Church and the Protestant Reformation did not continue their Semper Reformanda pattern. They did not continue in their Reformation to pull out of that Catholic influence. And so they still embrace the Lord's Day as the Christian Sabbath. Now, I love them. I love them, but I believe that's error. We're not keeping the Sabbath today. Yesterday was the Sabbath, and we probably didn't keep it yesterday either. And most men and women have never kept the Sabbath, even the most ardent Attempts to keep it, typically, they're not at least consistently at all times, Sabbath keepers. The good news is Christ is our Sabbath rest, 24-7 for all eternity. The day was a type, Christ is the reality. And so we rejoice in the reality. We don't insist on being under the type. And we refer to Hebrews chapter 4, Hebrews chapter 4 to justify our position on Jesus Christ being our Sabbath rest. Hebrews chapter 4 verse 1 says, Therefore, since a promise remains of entering his rest, let us fear lest any of you seem to have come short of it. For indeed the gospel was preached to us as well as to them. But the word which they heard did not profit them, not being mixed with faith by those who heard it. So as Hebrews chapter 4 opens up, How is it that you would enter into this rest being talked about in Hebrews 4? It would be through receiving and adhering to the gospel of Jesus Christ. And those that do not receive and adhere to the gospel of Jesus Christ do not enter into this rest that Hebrews 4 is talking about. Verse 3 says, For we who have believed do enter that rest, as he has said, So I swore in my wrath, they shall not enter my rest. Although the works were finished from the foundation of the world, for he has spoken in a certain place... 
of the seventh day in this way. Now get this for our overarching study. Although the works were finished from the foundation of the world. That's the opening point, right? God's work was finished on the sixth day. And here in Hebrews 4, we find, although the works were finished from the foundation of the world. For he, verse 4, For he has spoken in a certain place of the seventh day in this way, and God rested on the seventh day from all his works. And again in this place, they shall not enter my rest. Now here's a little extra caveat, bonus point. Hebrews 4 is upholding what as literal, actual truth? Genesis 1 and 2, the creation account. Scripture interpreting Scripture, Scripture confirming Scripture. Verse 5, And again in this place they shall not enter my rest. Since therefore it remains that some must enter it, and those to whom it was first preached did not enter because of disobedience. Again, he designates a certain day, saying, In David, today, after such a long time as it has been said, Today, if you'll hear his voice, do not harden your hearts. For if Joshua had given them rest, then he would not afterward have spoken of any other day. There remains, therefore, a rest for the people of God, for he who has entered his rest has himself also ceased from his works as God did from his. He was entered the rest of Christ by grace alone, through faith alone, in Jesus Christ, and his finished work alone has ceased from his works. We have ceased from attempting to attain righteousness through works, through the law, and specifically through a Sabbath day, for Christ is our eternal Sabbath. If you want to be a Sabbatarian... I advise you against it, but you need to then keep your Sabbath on the Sabbath, which is Saturday, not the Lord's Day. And you don't find Sabbath-keeping perpetuated in the New Testament. What do you find perpetuated or initiated and perpetuated? The Lord's Day, worshiping the Lord on the Lord's Day, the day our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ resurrected from the dead. We're not Sabbath keepers. We're Lord's Day keepers. We worship the Lord, not, not legalistically on the Lord's Day, but habitually on the Lord's Day because that's the day our Lord rose from the grave and that's the pattern given to us in the New Testament-inspired text. Colossians 2, verse 16 and following adds this to our understanding. Colossians 2, verse 16 through 23. It says, So let no one judge you in food or in drink, or regarding a festival, or new moon, or Sabbaths. So these were all part of the ceremonial law of Israel. Uh, And the New Testament church is not to be judged in them. And that's why some, mind you, make an argument that all the Sabbaths, even the Sabbath contained in the Ten Commandments, uh, was part of the ceremonial law. And it's it's a good argument, mind you. I still, I distinguish out the, the other Sabbaths, the ceremonial Sabbaths, from the actual Sabbath law in the Ten Commandments. I'm not apt to to start picking out one of the moral commandments and saying it doesn't hold. It's not binding. I believe it is binding and that Christ is the fulfillment. And I think that's the best understanding of Scripture, interpreting Scripture with Scripture. But if you deviate on that, you're still welcome to worship here. We'll love you and and be gracious. Uh, These are finer points, mind you. But get this, it matters. Let no one judge you in food or in drink or regarding a festival or new moon or Sabbath. Most Sabbatarians don't just say you should keep the Sabbath, but you should do what? You should keep Jewish dietary law. Most Sabbatarian groups that identify themselves with the name Sabbatarian, like in the name of their church or movement, they hold to the dietary restrictions as well. They're going back to the law. They're going back 
to Israel and to God's specific commands for Israel as a nation, the theocratic nation, but not for the New Testament church. Again, let no one judge you in food or in drink or regarding a festival or new moon or Sabbath. What's that mean? That means bacon's at men's breakfast. That's what it means. That means sausage is on the menu. That means shellfish are delicious, especially fried with some sauce. That means that those dietary restrictions are no longer binding, even as the Lord revealed to who? What, what apostle? Peter. The Lord filled a sheet in a prophetic vision for Peter with all of the unclean foods. And Peter was appalled as a faithful Jew. And the Lord said, Do not call unclean what I have declared clean. If ever there was a, a clear commandment that we're not bound by these restrictions that were meant for the theocracy of Israel, it was there to the apostle Peter. So let no one judge you in food or in drink or regarding a festival or new moon or Sabbath, which are a shadow of things to come. But the substance is Christ. The dietary restrictions were to set Israel apart so they wouldn't be like the other nations. They were to keep them as a distinct people. And hear me, Jesus Christ is our food. And he sets us apart that we are distinct people made holy in him changed into his likeness, feeding upon his word. Man shall not live on bread alone, but every word of the living God. And so that was a type, Christ is the reality, which are a shadow. Those were a shadow of the things to come, but the substance is Christ. Once you are the substance, don't go back to the shadow. We don't go back from the substance to the shadow. There are movements that are incredibly unhealthy, incredibly unhealthy. Some of them are genuine Christians doing incredibly unhealthy things. It's serious error that tends toward greater error that tends toward heresy if they go far enough because they're heading back toward law and they're getting further and further from the gospel of grace. We need to guard ourselves from those tendencies. When you've got someone inviting you to this special thing where they're going to teach you all the foods of Israel and they want to move you ever further from your liberty in Christ and the substance that is Christ into the law that was meant for the theocracy of Israel. But praise God, we have the substance. Why would we ever go back? Anyone ever make a mud pie as a kid? You ever eat one as an adult? No, ever eat one as a kid? Go ahead, raise your hand. Yeah, right? Don't go back, folks. You've got the substance. You've got real pie now. You've got cash in your pocket. You can buy real pie, or you can buy the ingredients to make it. Don't go back to mud pie. Don't go back. They're always glorying in the shadow. I mean, they get really excited about all of these festivals and ceremonies and trying to get them just right and on just the right date and, and carrying them out with all sorts of pomp and circumstance, glorying in the shadow, no, glory in the substance of Jesus Christ. Don't go back to the shadow. Colossians 2.18, Let no one cheat you of your reward, taking delight in false humility and worship of angels, intruding into those things which he has not seen, vainly puffed up by his fleshly mind, and not holding fast to the head, from whom all the body, nourished and knit together by joints and ligaments, grows with the increase that is from God. Therefore, if you died with Christ from the basic principles of the world, why, as though living in the world, do you subject yourselves to regulations, regulations that don't pertain to you? Do not touch, do not taste, do not handle which all concern things which perish with the using. According to the commandments and doctrines of men, these things indeed have an appearance of wisdom in self-imposed religion, false humility, and neglect of the body, but are of no value against the indulgence of the flesh. Now we've gone beyond 
the actual shadow that God commanded for Israel, and God's talking about other things of that type that man just creates out of thin blue air. Rome is probably the chief offender of that. All sorts of commands and rules like fish on Friday, pre-celibacy, all those sorts of things that Rome just created out of thin air and subjects mankind to. We're to have nothing to do with that. Nothing to do with that. That's not more holy, it's less. That's not more humble, it's proud. We're to have nothing to do with that. That's dead religion. It's a stench in the nostrils of God. Flee from it. Flee from it. Oh, we love our incense. Where do you find incense in your Bible? A couple places. Heaven and amongst the idol worshipers and in Israel under the theocracy that God ordained, but not, not for the New Testament church. And so don't go back there. Where do you find all the fancy robes and things? Where do you find all that? Again, you find it amongst the Baal worshipers and whatnot. Boy, remember that time they handed out all those robes to everybody so they could identify them, so they could slaughter them? Remember that time? The Lord put together that little party for the idolaters. And then, of course, you find it in Israel where the Lord gives all these strict commandments on how to form the ephod and the robes and everything and how to cleanse them ceremonially and all that. Don't go back there. You're not Israel. You're not the theocracy of Israel. You're not Baal worshipers. Wait for the incense in heaven. Don't create some strange fire. That didn't work out so well, did it? You make strange fire and God sends a holy fire. Don't do it. Don't do it. The rest of the creation story, God established the seven-day week for mankind. Let us embrace that seven-day week, but beware of the Sabbatarians that jump all the way back to Genesis to say, look, Sabbath law preceded the law of Moses. Thus, it continues after the law of Moses. That's why I've labored here, because Sabbatarians want to bind you up under their false teachings. The Sabbath is just the beginning of it. And the strict Seventh-day Adventists, the actual true adherence to Ellen G. White's teachings in the Seventh-day Adventist cult, they will bind you up under the Sabbath. And if you don't keep the Sabbath, if you keep Sunday, they call it keeping Sunday, if you're a Sunday keeper, then you're actually embracing the number of the beast 666 and you're not saved. That is strict Seventh-day Adventist teaching. Have no part of that, dear saints. God's creative act was finished on the sixth day. God established the seventh day week for mankind, and it is a blessing to mankind. We rejoice in it as a gift and blessing from Him. Pastor MacArthur adds this, There is no rational reason, no cosmic reason, no philosophical reason, no mathematical reason, and no scientific reason for seven-day weeks. There is, frankly, no other explanation for why the 365 days of our solar years were divided into sevens. The year doesn't even divide neatly that way. So why are our calendars ordered by weeks? There is only one reason God himself established that order in the pattern of his creation. Every week of our lives, we go through a cycle that is intended by God to remind us that he created the world in six days and rested on the seventh. The seventh day is a reminder that God is our creator. It's a memorial to a completed creation. Third point, God created man. God created man. And this is verses 4. This is our, our, our pregnant point. Verses 4 down through 17. God created man. And let me add this. Adam was never an ape, never a fish, 
and never a simple single-celled organism. God created man as he is. Only now, if anything, we have devolved. We've lost ability and information. We have not gained it. We've lost wisdom. We have not gained it. We've lost intelligence and no doubt strength and endurance, not gained it. So God created man. Look with me to verse 4. This is the history of the heavens and the earth when they were created in the day that the Lord God made the earth and the heavens. The day. Genesis 1.1. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. This is the history of the heavens and the earth. The history. When the Bible tells you this is the history, do you come to it and say this is an analogy? This is to be spiritualized? This is up in the air? We're not sure? No, God says this is the history of the creation of the heavens and the earth. And that's how we receive it as God's people. And thus we're rebels and not followers of Christ. This is the history of the heavens and the earth when they were created in the day that the Lord made the earth and the heavens. Before any plant of the field was in the earth, and before any herb of the field had grown, for the Lord God had not caused it to rain on the earth, and there was no man to till the ground. But a mist went up from the earth and watered the whole face of the ground. Now, this mist, I'm going to pause periodically here. We're going to, we're going to kind of go through this fast. It's kind of a narrative text. I don't, I don't want to go too deep on it. But this mist, this vapor, uh, Dr. Henry Morris writes this, of this mist and vapor. He says, as an introduction to the creation of man, the account first describes the condition of the world immediately prior to man's creation. In the day that the Lord God made the earth and the heavens, there was as yet no field plant in the earth and no field shrub growing since the Lord God had not yet established rainfall on the earth and since there was as yet no man to cultivate the ground. But there were water vapors rising from the earth which kept watering the whole face of the ground. He continues, the original hydrologic cycle was thus drastically different from that of the present day. The present day cycle, which began at the time of the great flood, involves global and continual air mass movements and annual and seasonal temperature changes. It is summarized quite scientifically in such scripture passages as Ecclesiastes 1, verses 6 and 7, Isaiah 55, 10 and 11, Job 28, verses 24 through 26, and Job chapter 36, verses 26 through 29, as well as Psalm 135, verses 6 and 7. This present cycle centers around the solar evaporation of ocean waters, transportation to the continents in the atmospheric circulation, condensation and precipitation in the form of rain and snow, and transportation back to the oceans via rivers. In the original world, however, there was no rainfall on the earth. As originally created, the earth's daily water supply came primarily from local evaporation and condensation. There was also, as noted later, a system of spring-fed rivers. The change in temperature between daytime and nighttime apparently was adequate to energize daily evaporation from each local body of water, and its condensation is dew and fog in the surrounding area each night. This arrangement was implemented on the second and third days of the creation week prior to the formation of the plants on the latter part of the third day. And so what's interesting is that the Bible, long before scientists discovered and declared it, the Bible declared the hydrologic cycle in various places in Scripture, in pretty scientific terms. The Bible is not a scientific textbook, but when it speaks to 
sciencey things. When it speaks to the material universe, it speaks factually to it. And often it speaks even before the scientists have discovered the truth of it. Kind of like when the Bible says that you should wash your hands under running water and not in some little puddle, some little dish. You just sprinkle your hands there and then go open up someone's body and stick your hands in it to do a surgery with all sorts of germs on it. No, the Bible said, wash your hands under running water to wash off those germs that you not infect others. And so we find the wisdom of God declared long before mankind discovered it out in creation. So God declares the heavens and the earth were created and the plants of the field were watered by this mist. Verse 6, the mist went up from the earth and watered the whole face of the ground. Verse 7, and the Lord God formed man out of the dust of the ground and breathed into his nostrils the breath of life and man became a living being. The Lord God formed man out of the dust of the ground. Men, you're nothing but dirt. And worse, you're dirty rascals. You're sinners. We're glorified dirt, sinful dirt, except by the grace of God. But we're created from dirt. Interestingly, uh, the name Adam means literally dirt or earth. Our forefather, Adam, his name was dirt. That's a humble beginning, is it not? Is it not a humble beginning? I mean, we'll get to woman, but what's her name? Eve. That's a little more precious. Mother of all living, man, dirt. How about that? There you have it from the Word of God. Grandpa, dirt. Grandma, mother of all living. So God created man quite humbly out of dirt, but quite gloriously. Quite gloriously. The Lord God formed man of the dust of the ground and breathed into his nostrils the breath of life. Just like in chapter 1 in verses 26 and 27, where God says within the Trinity, let us make man in our image. That's unique amongst all the animals, all the flora and fauna. God didn't get together in the Trinity and say, let us make a flower, right? I mean, ultimately, all the Trinity was included in all the creation with Christ leading the way out as the foremost person of the Godhead, given credit for creation. But the Lord very specifically created mankind in His image. And thus you see this Trinitarian conversation, let us make mankind in our image. And here in chapter 2, once again, you see God not breathing life into cows and pigs and dogs and cats and birds, but God breathing life specifically into man in that very personal way who is created in His image. Let us say again, man is not a glorified ape. Man is not an evolved fish. Man is not an evolved, simple-celled organism. Man was created from dirt as a man in the image of God, and God breathed life into him. And his name was dirt. His name was Adam, or earth. Earth is a little kinder. All glory to God. And let me again remind you to allow the Word of God to elevate mankind in your heart, that you would love your fellow image bearers. Because the highest commandment is to love the Lord your God, your Creator. But the second highest is to love your neighbor, your image-bearing neighbors, to love them and have compassion for them as fellow image bearers of God, as dirt glorified 
and fallen in need of grace. May we be messengers and ministers of grace. Verse 8. The Lord God planted a garden eastward in Eden, and there He put the man whom He had formed. And out of the ground the Lord God made every tree grow that is pleasant to the sight and good for food. The tree of life was also in the midst of the garden, and the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. Where is Eden? I don't know. The world has changed a lot since the global flood. It has changed a lot. Where are the rivers that are later mentioned? I don't know. You could try to guess, but my guess is that the riverbeds had changed radically since the worldwide upheaval in a global flood. And very likely Pangaea was split and became our current continents as we know them. Pangaea being the one great singular continent. And so the Lord placed man in this perfect place, this beautiful place, the Garden of Eden. There he put the man whom he had formed. And out of the ground the Lord God made every tree grow that is pleasant to the sight and good for food. And the tree of life was also in the midst of the garden and the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. This, this tree of life that would perpetuate life and seems to be in the New Testament as well and will perpetuate life forever. There'll be new heavens, new earth in which only righteousness dwells and the tree of life seems to be there and the leaves thereof and the fruit thereof seem to be a blessing to mankind forever. But there's not great detail about it, so I'm not going to try to wax eloquent about it. Some have tried to do so. I'll not. I'll let you go read their ponderings. The tree of knowledge of good and evil, that certainly is noteworthy. The tree of knowledge of good and evil. Let me ask you this. Was the tree of knowledge of good and evil good or evil? It was good because Genesis 1.31 says, and it was all good. It was all good. It was good. And it was God's good plan to place the tree of the knowledge of good and evil in the Garden of Eden. It was God's good plan to allow Adam and Eve the ability to disobey God and fall in sin. It was all part of God's good and perfect plan. God is not the author or originator of sin, but he allowed and predetermined that they would fall in sin, that he might be the savior of sinners. That he might put his attributes on full and glorious display. And there's no getting around the reality that God placed that tree in the garden. And some of our atheist friends make much hay out of that tree, which is odd to make hay out of trees. Bad joke, I guess. What do we do with that? What do we do with the problem of evil? That really is what we're talking about here. It's a problem as far as the atheists are concerned. It's not a problem at all when you rightly divide the Word of God and apply it. But as far as the atheists are concerned, they want to make it a problem for you to trip over and for other men and women to trip over that there is evil at all and make it a problem that God allowed evil, make it a problem that God placed this tree in the garden that would bring about the fall of mankind and that God created Lucifer, who would come to tempt Eve and Adam with her. So all of that, and we'll get more into that in chapter 3, but we've got to start dealing with it now because God put this tree in the garden. Wouldn't it have been helpful just not to put it there? Well, it would have been helpful if God did not desire to what? Put his attributes on full and glorious display. Which remember, the greatest good is that God would be glorified. That God will be glorified. That is the greatest good. How do you get the greatest good? Because God declares the greatest good. And the greatest good is His glory. 
And thus God putting his attributes on display is the greatest good. And we say, well, that doesn't seem like maybe the greatest good. By what standard would you then judge something else to be the greater good? And so we come with Paul in Romans chapter 11, and we say, all glory be to God, everything for the glory of God. And we're on board with the glory of God. We rejoice in the glory of God. And we confess that we are too small and too frail. Let's go there and look at that, that great declaration of worship in Romans chapter 11. Just briefly, Romans chapter 11, verse 33. Oh, the depth of the riches, both the wisdom and knowledge of God. How unsearchable are His judgments and His ways past finding out. At the end of the day, when the atheist pressed you about why God put the tree of the knowledge of good and evil in the garden, you can say authoritatively, How unsearchable are his judgments in his ways past finding out. You can also say Psalm 711, God is a just judge. All that God does is just. God is good. All that God does is good. And so, oh, the depths of the riches, both the wisdom and knowledge of God. How unsearchable are his judgments in his ways past finding out. For who has known the mind of the Lord? Or who has become his counselor? Or who has first given to him and it shall be repaid him? For of him and through him and to him are all things to whom be glory forever and ever. Amen. That last verse, verse 36, of him, through him, and to him. God is sovereign over everything. He's working all things according to the counsel of his will. Ephesians 1.11. Don't deny that. Don't deny God's sovereignty over everything to try to defend his character because God put a tree in the garden that would lead to the fall of man or because God created an angel that would come to the garden to tempt Eve who would tempt Adam with her leading to the fall of man or just because there's evil in a world and if God is good and God is sovereign, how can there be evil in the world? Because God has allowed evil for a time for his good purposes that are far above our full comprehension and it would be a cosmic level ego that would set itself up to judge the God of the universe. For of him and through him and to him are all things to whom be the glory forever. Amen. And all of God's saints said, Amen. So God created Adam. Adam was never an ape, a fish, or a single-celled organism. God placed Adam in the Garden of Eden. It was getting misty daily, fog coming to water everything. This is pre-rain. The Bible speaks of the hydrologic system that God has designed. And God placed this tree in the garden that would lead to the fall of man. And he did it for his own good purposes that are higher than our full comprehension. But we get, we can get that the highest good is the glory of God. We can get that of him and through him and to him are all things for his glory. We can get that by the grace of God. Now verse 10 a river went out of Eden to water the garden, and from there it parted and became four river heads. The name of the first is Pishon. It is the one which skirts the whole land of Havilah, where the gold is, and the gold of that land is good. Bedalam and the Ankh stone are there, and the name of the second river is Gion. And it is the one which goes around the whole land of Cush. If you want to pronounce those differently, you're welcome to. The name of the third river is Hedekel. It is the one which goes toward the east of Assyria. The fourth river is Euphrates. I would stick to that pronunciation. And verse 15, Then the Lord God took the man and put him in the garden of Eden to tend and keep it. And the Lord God commanded the man, saying, Of every tree of the garden you may freely eat, but the tree of the knowledge of good and evil you shall not eat, for in the day you eat of it you shall surely die. Hear me, work is not a curse. Work is not part of the curse. 
Now, post-fall, post-sin, work is cursed, but work is not a curse, right? Verse 15, Then the Lord God took man and put him in the Garden of Eden to tend and keep it. We have a growing, growing epidemic of homelessness and worklessness, laziness. It's everywhere. There's hardly a corner anywhere where you can't find somebody standing with a sign wanting you to give the money you worked for to them so they don't have to work, so they don't have to pass a drug test, so they don't have to be sober long enough to stand upright for eight hours. That's a tragedy. But hear me, the solution is not handouts. The solution is ramification. The solution is if a man does not work, he shall not eat as a rule. Now, there are exceptions, a few exceptions where people genuinely come upon circumstances outside of their control completely. Those are the extreme exception. As a rule, they need to suffer the consequence. If a man shall not work, he shall not eat. And thus, what? Their rumbling tummy does what? Compels them to work. Compels them to work. And we could even, once someone has fallen to that level, they fall into that pattern of sin, we can help them up out of that if they truly want help up out as Christians or as a society as a government it it could be a good thing to do to help them up out of that if they truly want a helping hand up out of that to go to work but not a hand out a hand up not a hand out hand outs only what enslave them to their own sin nature and so the state that has the most handouts like our state or the city that has the most handouts like our city has a growing laziness problem a growing homeless problem. And that's not good for mankind. That's not good for our neighbor. I know it's not good for your property value. I know it's not good for your safety because those folks tend to be involved in at least petty crime, if not more serious crimes. It's a very unstable lifestyle and sin begets sin. And so the answer, the biblical answer is a man, if a man does not work, he shall not eat. We could preach a whole message on that topic. Certainly our government officials need to hear it. Uh, But let's just say work was not part of the fall. God took the man, put him in the Garden of Eden to tend and keep it. And the Lord God commanded the man, saying, Of every tree of the garden you may freely eat. Eat of the trees. Go ahead. All of them. It's great. Except one, the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. You shall not eat. For the day you eat of it, you shall surely die. You shall surely die. I've had Bible haters, God haters sometimes say, Look, he didn't die. The Bible's not true. Those are like on the atheist websites. That's one of the proofs the Bible's not true. Adam ate, didn't die. Not true. Adam ate and died. He ate and died spiritually. Death came upon him. He began to die immediately. Now, he lived hundreds of years beyond that, but under the curse of death. And where did you see the curse of death literally come out very quickly? In his children. Ooh, the original family. How tragic. The very first family was ripped apart by murder. One son murdering the other, Cain killing Abel. If ever there was a tragic display of death in mankind and being passed down from generation to generation, father to son to daughter. It's in Adam and Eve and in their children, in Cain and Abel. How tragic, how horrific as you see sin unfold after Genesis 3. And so we have Adam created of God in the garden, the mist coming up to water the plants. We have Adam dirt, earth, there, working, tending the garden, but he's lonely. What are we going to do about it? He's lonely. God created woman. Final point, God created woman. 
And let me say this with dogmatic conviction. Eve was never an ape. Amen, ladies? Yes. Eve was never an ape. Eve was never a fish. Eve was never a simple, single-celled organism. There's nothing simple about women. Amen? Eve was never an ape, fish, or a simple, single-celled organism. God created woman. Verse 18, And the Lord God said, It is not good that man should be alone. I will make him a helper, comparable or comparable to him. And out of the ground, the Lord God formed every beast of the field and every bird of the air and brought them to Adam. So we need a helper. I think God's teaching Adam, these are not your helper. These are not comparable to you. This isn't going to work, right? Dog is not man's best friend. Woman is. A horse is handy, but not your best friend, not a comparable helpmate. So the Lord forms out of the ground, the beast of the field, the bird of the air, and brings them to Adam, and Adam names them. Adam names them. By the way, verse 19, that's the first mention of Adam's name. It's just a mention. It's a, by the way, his name's Adam. His name is Dirt. His name is Earth. Eve gets a proper name from her husband, from Adam. Out of the ground, the Lord God formed every beast of the field and every bird of the air and brought them to Adam to see what he would call them. And whatever Adam called each living creature, that was its name. We had a brief discussion yesterday in our family about how long that would take to name all these critters. We came to the conclusion it would take a little while, but not too long because they were the originally created critters, not all of the, the speciation within kind, just the original ones. It, so it would be kind of like naming all the critters that went on or came off of Noah's Ark, not every variation within kind. But nevertheless, it was a task, and it was an act of authority, of rulership, because Adam was given rule and dominion over the creatures of the earth. And so he named them. He named them. And whatever Adam called each living creature, that was its name. So Adam gave names to the cattle, the birds, the air, to the beasts of every field. But for Adam, there was not found a helper comparable to him. And the Lord God caused a deep sleep to fall on Adam, and he slept. And he took one of his ribs, and he closed up the flesh in its place. Then the rib which the Lord God had taken from man, he made into a woman, and he brought her to the man. And Adam said, This is now bone of my bones and flesh of my flesh. She shall be called woman because she was taken out of man. What a glorious creation. God loved men and he created a helpmate suitable to them. And ladies, God loved you. And he created Adam for you to be a blessing to you. And together we're better able to glorify God than we are apart by God's good design. And so we praise God for His good design. We rejoice in it. It's not a war against men against women and women against men. Both are created for the glory of God to work together to that end, to magnify His great name. We find the intimate relationship between man and woman. Eve, the first woman, was created from a portion of Adam. Now, she is dirt one step removed. Sorry, ladies. But she's not called dirt. That's not her name. Her name is Eve, mother of all living. And notice that Adam names both the gender and the particular woman that is his wife. As again, an act of headship and leadership. Not rule in some worldly sense, some unhealthy sense, but headship and leadership and rule in a gracious, godly, as Christ loved the church sense and died for her died for her, but a real sense of headship by God's design. So the Lord caused a deep sleep to fall on Adam, and he slept. And he took one of his ribs and closed up the flesh in its place. 
Then the rib which the Lord God had taken from man, he made into a woman and brought her to the man. You've heard it often said, God did not take a bone from his head that she might rule over him. God did not take a bone from his foot that he might rule ruthlessly over her. God took a rib from his side that they might walk side by side, hand in hand, to serve God together, having dominion over the earth. Verse 23, Adam said, This is now bone of my bones and flesh of my flesh. She shall be called woman because she was taken out of man. And that's a precious statement, right? There's affection there. There's endearment there. There's love there. And that's how we should feel about one another as brothers and sisters in Christ. That's how we should feel generally about the opposite gender. And that's how we should feel very specifically about the husband that God has given us. And more specifically yet, the wife that God has given us. That they have become what? One flesh, one flesh in the covenant of marriage. This is now bone of my bones, flesh of my flesh. She should be called woman because she was taken out of man. Verse 24, therefore a man shall leave his father and mother, be joined to his wife, and they shall become one flesh. And they were both naked, the man and his wife, and were not ashamed. God created male and female. There are no other genders. There are no non-binary human beings. God created male and female. God literally created Adam and Eve. Adam, earth or dirt. Eve, the mother of all living. She is the literal grandmother of every human being. She is the mother of all living human beings. We are one family. We are one race, mankind. We are one blood. Praise God. Therefore, a man shall leave his father and mother, be joined to his wife. They shall become one flesh. And Malachi would tell us why. To produce godly offspring for God's glory and praise. And they were both naked, the man and his wife, and were not ashamed because there was no sin. And that's the only context, generally speaking, in which nakedness is not shameful or sinful between a husband and a wife. Obviously, there's a few more contexts. God created man and woman and nothing else. There are no non-binary human beings, but there are sinners suppressing the truth and unrighteousness in their rebellion against their Creator. God created marriage for one man and one woman for life, for His glory, the production of godly offspring, and their blessing. And it's in that order. It's in that order. One man, one woman for life, for His glory, for the production of godly offspring, and their blessing. When you get it out of order, it's for my blessing, right? Then you're going to actually have less blessings. You're going to stumble more, have more trials, more heartache, more division and strife. But when you commit your marriage to being for the glory of God and the production of godly offspring, and you get it in the right order, selflessly, then you'll actually find more marital bliss. <laughs> you'll find a husband dying to self and loving his wife as Christ loved the church, wife submitting herself to the husband as unto the Lord, working together for the glory of God, working together through the rough spots, right? Through, through the the struggles of life, through the the vestiges of the fallen nature in him and in her, and the fallen nature that comes out in their children, all the little Cains and Abels. But you'll find the greatest blessing in the context of marriage as you commit yourself to being married for the glory of God and raising godly offspring, and then for the satisfaction of your emotional, physical, and other needs. This is the rest of the creation story. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for this glorious truth and how, Lord, it sets our work week 
how it sets the course of our lives, how it sets for us what gender is, what marriage is, where one can be unclothed and be righteous and, and not. Lord, we thank you for the clarity of your scripture and the blessing that it is in so many ways. May we walk in the light thereof and may we shed this light forth in the earth for a world that is sinking ever deeper into darkness. We pray it in the mighty name of Jesus. Amen.